Hello and welcome to the Brave Business Podcast, brought to you by accounting, tax, audit and advisory firm Blick Rothenberg. Brave by name and brave by nature, this series is different. Aimed at entrepreneurial business, we focus on providing practical guidance, timely insights and professional opinions from industry experts, helping you make informed decisions for your business. I'm Declan Curry, journalist and broadcaster. Today we look at the challenges of moving goods internationally. How have things changed since Brexit? What is the new border operating model? And what impact will new and proposed trade agreements have on the supply of different types of products to the UK? Joining me to discuss all this from Blick Rothenberg, its customs and duty partner, Simon Sutcliffe, and alongside him, Charles Hogg, who is commercial director at the freight forwarder and customs broker, Unsworth. Welcome, both of you, to our discussion. Charles, just give me a quick sense of, you've got a couple of hats here that you're wearing. Describe the hats. Yes, so Unsworth are a recognised freight forwarder that does manage supply chains across the world. We specialise in using technology and AI to deliver an efficient process. I also am the chair of the British International Freight Association. So today I wear both hats to try and give a balanced opinion on what's happening out there. And Simon, what's your role at Blick Rothenberg? Well, as you say, Declan, I'm the customs duty partner, but I also advise clients on uh, streamlining their supply chains, international trade, and giving general advice whether they come into conflict with HMRC or other judicial authorities and customs agencies, but generally trying to give them an idea of how to move their goods as smoothly and as efficiently as possible across frontiers. Let's start at the beginning. Imagine that our listener is running a company, very successful in England, Scotland and Wales, lots of happy customers. They think that there might be a demand for their product in Northern Ireland or in the European Union. What are the first things they need to think about to become exporters? Charles? Fantastic. Um, I think the realities are is they've got to find a customs broker to guide them as to what paperwork's required. Oh, come on, you would say that, wouldn't you? (laughs) (laughs) And then more importantly, actually understanding the market for their product and that it's compliant to what the market needs. And we tend to find... A lot of people in the last two years have approached us with that exact question and we tend to point them in the direction of relevant trade associations and also relevant trade fairs where they can meet potential customers or distributors. And from our side, that seems to give them the first kick up the stairs in terms of what they're looking for. Simon, is that specialist advice needed? You can't just wake up one morning and start sending stuff in the post, can you? Absolutely. And... and Having a good freight forwarder and a customs broker is vital. You will rely quite heavily on your customs broker and your freight forwarder, and quite rightly so. Sometimes clients rely too heavily on their freight forwarder and customs broker, so they really need to understand and upskill themselves about what type of product they're moving. Are there any special regulations? Are there any special requirements? Uh, What market are they moving into? When the goods arrive in that new market, what's going to happen to them there? Who's going to clear them there? Who's going to sell them there? So they really need to upskill themselves as well with all the regimes and reliefs. They don't need to be an expert, but they need to have a good idea. And as I say, a a good freight forwarder and a good customs agent will help them guide them through and push them in the right direction and help them make those decisions so they get it right in the first place, really. And people might think listening to this, hang on, 
when he asked that question, why did he make a difference between England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland? And Simon, the answer to that, of course, is Brexit. It is. In the customs world, we don't really refer to the UK anymore. We refer to Great Britain and Northern Ireland um, for obvious reasons. Northern Ireland has a foot in two camps, to put it colloquially. Um, they're part of the EU single market for goods, um, but they're also part of the, the GB UK Customs Union. So they've got quite a unique place, um, and it's quite a special place for them to be. And if you tailor your supply chain correctly, you can take advantage of that if you're moving goods to and from Northern Ireland and from the EU into Northern Ireland via, say, the Republic. So it has got quite a unique place. So when we talk about uh, moving goods to Northern Ireland, we've we've got to get rid of this UK aspect and talk about GB and NI. And there are discussions to be had about whether this is a great advantage, trading advantage for Northern Ireland and the political consequences of it. And that may well be something for another podcast. Just looking at the movement of goods, um, say a company that makes sandwiches in the East Midlands. They've been selling them in the supermarkets of Belfast for years and years and years. Then the Northern Ireland Protocol and Brexit and everything else happened. What has changed? What has changed is that, as you say, Northern Ireland has a unique place, but it's also got its own set of rules and regulations and protocols that have to be adhered to by people moving certainly agricultural and food products into the province. The recent changes in the Windsor, Windsor Protocol have resulted in a whole host of new acronyms that take some getting to the grips with. You've got NERMS and IMS and EU-only labelling and things like that. And it becomes quite a onerous task for companies getting to grips with that. It's not impossible, but they need to get to grips with it. And that's why companies like uh, companies of Charles's, uh, Charles's company can help them navigate those changes. Are they registered for the right regime? Can they move it? Have they got all the, the right certification in place? So having someone like Charles's company or any freight, good freight forwarder is vital because they will say, stop, hold on, you've not got the right health certificate, you've not filled in the right uh, information, you've not got unfettered access, you've not got this, you've not got that. So that's where we go back to this original point of having a good freight forwarder and a good customs broker. Charles, I, I want to hear that detail in, in just a second, but just so I'm clear in my own mind, are these the same rules if you are this English, Welsh or Scottish company and you are trying to sell your goods in Northern Ireland, are these the same rules as if you were trying to sell in France or Spain, or are they different again? I would love to say they're the same, but unfortunately there are different uh, sets of rules applicable to GBNI goods than GBEU goods. So it's an absolute minefield. And to reassure your listeners here, some of the biggest household British names that we would see on the high street do get it wrong and have got it wrong. I'm not sure that's as reassuring as you might think. But I think we've got to give at least some confidence that it is a challenge. And, of course, exporting is continuing. It didn't stop dead the day after Brexit came into force. Right. These things that we need to think about, whether you haven't exported before, whether you're a very experienced exporter. Yeah, if we take the example of Europe, because it's a, a bigger marketplace mm. uh, that exists, I think it's get about getting the paperwork right understanding what the local regulations are for the particular products and really most importantly ensuring that the product that you have actually matches 
what the market's looking for, and that you can almost remove the effect that Brexit's created for the German uh, buyer uh, to buy from you. Because ultimately, they've now got the choice of buying from uh, GB or buying from a French company. And so from my side, it's about ticking off those boxes and recognising that there is an awful lot more paperwork required which has a cost associated. And it is more difficult for that German company to buy from an English, Welsh or a Scottish company than it is to buy from a French company or a Spanish company. That's, that's just a hard fact of Brexit. Yes, but there are tips and tricks you can do to make that easier around, you know, different customs regimes, a label, um, different imports of record to be used so that it's a, it's a local sale rather than an international sale. And there's lots of tips and tricks that over the last two years, these uh, sellers of goods have really picked up and have shared amongst themselves to make them more attractive in the marketplace. Having dangled ticks and tricks tricks in front of us now i'm going to want you to tell me what they are but just at a very basic level when we talk about paperwork and checks and everything else what are we talking about is it tax is it safety is it quality what are we what what is being checked what is being assessed and evaluated no absolutely so you've got to remember that it's whether you're shipping to France or through to the USA, ultimately you've got an export and an import customs entry. Associated to the import customs entry, there could be additional checks around meat and cheese and uh, live produce. But also in terms of uh, safety, in terms of the EU regulations and the conformities that uh, exist uh, within the EU marketplace, they'll be performing all those checks at the truck border while the truck could be waiting. So suddenly it becomes a bit of a ticking taxi meter in cost. So these checks are to make sure that the goods we make match their regulations at, the, at its most basic level. Absolutely. And it might not be us making them. The seller of the goods could have bought them originally from the Far East. So they could have come in from a factory in China and now they're being... Uh, re-exported to Europe and this all comes in. Quite possibly. And before Brexit, it was assumed that our goods met those standards already. So this is a level of verification that wasn't required before Brexit. That would be a simple way to put it, yes. Simple, simple is good for helping my understanding. <laughs> Absolutely. And from my side, it is, it is exactly that way. So talk me through the process. Talk me through the, 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 the tips that you Yep. So. Mentioned. Ultimately, um, we're trying to encourage sellers in the UK to remove the barriers that Brexit created. Those include making it easy for a customer in the EU to buy from you. So you want to make it a domestic sale to them where it's just simply a transaction from, say, for example, from France to uh, Germany rather than having to take into account the international borders. That will be known as Regime 42 on the marketplace and there are a lot of different companies as specialists in that world who are able to really guide what type of logic works best there but certainly uh, to give you some numbers uh, last year we saw nearly nine billion worth of trade performed through that regime from the uk so certainly there is appetite to remove the barriers brexit created that's the biggest tip and trick that really simplifies brexit simon you're perspective on this just in, in terms of the steps that exporters british exporters now have to go through 
What are they thinking about? What What's the range of the paperwork? Well, as Charles rightly says, you know, you've, you've got to decide who is actually going to get your goods into that particular jurisdiction. Is it going to be you, which then leads to a host of, of other requirements that you would need to do in France or Germany, for example? Or are you going to appoint a distributor who will maybe take part of your profit but will remove that that burden from you? Why does that make a difference? Because if you have an official distributor who's based in, say, France, they will be the importer of record. They will be responsible for the customs documentation. They'll be responsible for paying any customs duty that that, uh, that is levied. They'll be responsible for paying any import VAT at the local rate that's levied and reclaiming it, because that's an important point is only the owner of the goods technically can reclaim import VAT. So if you have a distributor, they sometimes take the weight off your shoulders, but what you're doing is you're giving control of your product to a distributor who will then make the sales in other jurisdictions. And then the last one is you do it yourself, where you're the importer of record, and, and as we talked about, or, or sorry, your, your, your customer is the importer of record, but that puts on them the burden. As Charles says, that's not always attractive to your customer in the EU, because it means more paperwork for them. And they well. have to pay the customs duty and they have to pay the import VAT and reclaim the import VAT on, on its on its highest level. So you've got to decide, you know, what is going to be your best customer experience. But whichever you do, you need to decide is how you're going to minimize your duty costs, how you're gonna how you're gonna minimize your your onward sale and make sure you 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 have a good sale and you 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 maximize your own profits. So there's a whole host of things that come into play with that. You've got to make sure that the, if you're sending it to a related company, have you valued the goods correctly? Because if you're sending it from Acomic UK Limited to Acomic GmbH, then the German Customs Service will say, well, hold on, you're related. So that means if I was unrelated and I wanted to buy the same goods from you, would I get the same deal? Well, quite obviously not, because you're going to give a better deal to your related company than you are an unrelated third party. So a lot of the, the customs agencies will question when you've got a company selling to itself or transferring goods to itself. So you've got to make sure you get the value for customs correct. Secondly is, what is the origin of the goods? And we're moving on a little bit here with, um, when we talk about origin, and there's a, there's a very, um, there's a decision being made at the moment about electric vehicles, which has been in the press quite recently about where the origin of those batteries are and can they be considered to be UK or EU origin. The same applies for all goods. Is it of EU origin? And when we talk about origin, we don't mean just mean where was it sent from. It's where it meets certain rules to be able to be class it as, you know, is it champagne from champagne? I mean, that's, that's taking it to, to its very simplistic level. But has it been manufactured? Has it gone through certain processing? Can it be legitimately called a good of that origin? If it can and it's covered by a trade agreement, then you can legitimately knock away certain amounts of customs duty. So that makes it more attractive. So, But these are responsibilities on, on clients sending and, and also importing. Is it valued correctly? Has it got the right origin? Because if you do, then you can then maximise the benefit to your customers and for yourself because you're getting everything as accurate as possible and you withstand any attempts by any customs agency in the future to sort of examine what you've done and how you've done it. What I'm trying to get a sense of is whether this whole process that we've been through since the referendum is just means more hassle, a bit more paperwork, more time waiting at Dover for the lorries to get waved through, or whether there's been a fundamental realignment 
or more supply chains. If you were a company that was used to sending goods to Japan and the US and likewise importing, if you had an, an international supply chain already, to you, it was not so much of, a, of, of an issue. Yes, there was still bureaucratic issues and administrative issues. Not so much the issue of overlaying that. Oh, got you. Because, because those are the hoops you were leaping through anyway. Exactly. So you'd be aware of your free trade agreements. You'd be aware of what documents you needed to submit. You'd have a pretty slick process, hopefully, in place already. Once you... Once you then start talking about companies that have never moved goods internationally outside of Brexit uh, or outside of the EU, then it becomes a, almost like an administrative and bureaucratic nightmare for them because it's something completely fresh. Uh, whereas before you would fill in a few forms, you'd stick your goods, and I'm being colloquial, stick your goods on a lorry and drive it across and then you'd be able to sell your goods. Now it's it's more bureaucratic, more administrative. And if you're not on top of that, it does create a particular... Problem. So you need to look at your, your supply chain saying, how am I working this? What do I need to do? So not so much for the, the, the experienced international movers of goods, more so the companies that were fresh to this, the fresh to these forms. For them, it's been seismic, absolutely seismic. Have any of your clients said to you, I just can't do this anymore? I'm just going I to think there's, I think there's the some whole idea very big it. reported examples in the UK trade press that say, you know, M&S pulled out of, of the French market because they just felt they couldn't complete the paperwork in time for what their products needed. But very much so on the front line, you know, I probably get 10 or 20 customers a month even today who are saying we've really had to stop selling post-Brexit because of the fact we just can't, um, afford, in their eyes, to hit all the requirements of the EU market. So it's not a case of new rules, they take time to bed in, give it a while, get used to it. It'll be as natural as breathing once you get your head around it. I personally think it is. And if we look at some of these very sort of boutique, you know, meat or cheese type uh, manufacturers, where they've got quite a niche product with a relatively small market, they've really had to bow out of those markets because the, the risk and reward, it really just isn't there for them. Charles, in terms of the advice that you give clients, and I'm thinking here about previous exporters, experienced exporters, what's changed for them? Yeah, so in the last year especially, experienced exporters have started to become quite clever. Using an example, they buy something from the Far East, they bring it into the UK, and they sell it to a customer in Germany. That might mean it isn't, it is dutiable on the importation into the EU. They might now start shipping that product direct into Germany. Also, how they're re-engineering their supply chain, so sourcing parts of the product from um, different countries to reduce the duty burden of that product upon importation are just some of the things we're starting to see. In actual fact... These are big changes, though. Ab absolutely. You know, I could look at the examples of, you know, some of the big recipes that are made in the big production kitchens in the UK. There's massive changes to the origin of the cheese that's going into these mills because of the fact that they need to benefit from the trade agreements. Let me turn it around. Are there things that exporters should have done but may not have done and it's going to catch them if they're not aware of them? It, I, I know I'm asking you to, to tell me the unknowns, but I'm just wondering, are there obvious ones that either of you have seen that 
can set up a real bear trap of the future. But a couple of simple steps now could avoid that. Absolutely. Naivety and lack of knowledge is not an excuse to HMRC. And we're certainly seeing the <laughs> level of uptake in terms of um, inspections around compliance um, being a, a very prevalent thing. Nearly every new customer we go into and talk to, we identify areas that are of concern to us as a business around compliance. Are you able to say what they are? Yeah, it's all about dotting the I's, crossing the T's and evidencing, if they're saying a statement, how they've come about to, how they're evidencing that statement on particular documents. Origin is a minefield in terms of actually being able to prove where something's from. More than that now, say for example, I had a, a tow bar for a car and it fitted a Land Rover, that could be subject to license and controls, which are really there for preventing the export of weapons and related um, articles of war. But actually, just because that tow bar could also fit a Land Rover Defender that's used by armies across the world, it might need a license to export. I'm just giving you one example uh, of something that's just so uh, common that could actually um, open up a complete can of worms. Simon. Yes, going back to your original point as well, where, where we talked about you know exporters missing a trick, um, and this is for importers as well, so it's relevant for importers as well. It, it's where, for example, you've got a client who imports their, the mainstay of their stock from China, brings it into the UK, and the UK pre-Brexit was a distribution hub, massive distribution hub. It was one of the places where a lot of American companies used it as a stopping off point to jump into Europe. South Korean, Australian companies did. That's why we had a lot of foreign car makers. A absolutely, absolutely. So you'd, you'd, you'd bring your items in from China, you'd bring them into the UK, you'd clear them through customs with a view to then supplying your, as an exporter, to your EU market. Now, post-Brexit, you'd be paying customs duty on arrival into the UK, and then when you shipped it onto the EU, you'd be paying customs duty again, mainly because of the origin issues, but mainly because of, po uh, of, of post-Brexit. So what, what what exporters are getting very cute at and very good at, and importers, is is using those regimes that Charles mentioned before. For example, customs warehousing. We used to call them bonds in the old days. Shows how old I am. We used to call them bonded warehouses, just like the Indiana Jones thing, you know, with the big packing cases all, as far as the eye can see. Putting your goods in a bond, which means they're in technically a limbo. So you're not clearing them through customs technically. You're then being able to service your EU market. So as an exporter and an importer you're not paying that dreaded double duty or even treble duty that goes on. So you, you, you're using that regime. You're bringing things in. Say, for example, I'm going to be facetious here. You bring in leather jackets and you put loads of studs on them. So you're processing them. So there's another regime called inward processing and outward processing. Again, the items are put in limbo. You don't pay duty on them till they reach their final market into what we call free circulation. So using those regimes are what more and more companies have got used to doing. And it's become almost like second nature now to a lot of them where they're using this in parlance and saying oh could i use something called inward processing and you think well the very fact that you know the term was it google that told you it's very heartening and, and the fact where they say to you yes we bring it into a 3pl in in the west midlands what about could we turn that into a into a customs warehouse happy days because they've realized that hold on we're paying 12 percent when it comes in from china for example plus lots and lots of maybe anti-dumping duty and all sorts of issues with with chinese origin goods but then we're also paying it when we arrive in, in our French market. So why are we paying you know 24% and why are we doing this and why are we doing that? So that's where I think a lot of exporters and importers have, have managed to 
get on board with this. And it's very heartening to hear. And that's when we talk about not missing a trick is understanding those regimes. And I think you mentioned it right at the very start with, you know, what are the tricks? And they're not tricks because they're perfectly legitimate tools that, that companies can use. And exporters are, we're almost left high and dry. We concentrate on imports or the UK government concentrate on importers and left exporters to sort of get on with it. So in the pre in the preparations for it, the government was more worried about British supermarket shelves going empty than helping, I don't know, the car industry or yeah. the, the aerospace industry with its exports to Europe. Exactly. They were more concerned about manufacturers running out of raw materials and supermarket shelves being empty. So the poor old exporter was somewhat left high and dry saying, well, yes, we know you've got to send goods to the EU, but you'll figure it out. You'll be, you'll be fine. Let's concentrate on making sure that, you know, we've got a vote winner here in the UK and we're not going to have empty shelves and we're not going to have factories on a three-day week. From the way you're describing this, I'm, I'm sensing that you perhaps don't think that was the most sensible approach. I, I don't want to relitigate old arguments, but it, it seems relevant in terms of a lot of exporters found themselves having to catch up with rules that fell into place at the very last minute. Absolutely. I'm not going to be political about it, but it's it's a case of... There was an issue with uh, lots and lots of easements, very good easements that were brought in for importers. Easements anyway, being a relaxation, a, a relaxation. temporary relaxation. A relaxation of rules on importing goods and, and putting in delayed entries and things like that. So it was very, very much geared towards the importer. And I've got some sympathy with exporters because they were almost left to figure it out for themselves. Um, and that probably wasn't the ideal situation that they, they should have been left in. It's changing, but... I think at the time, more support might have been better for an exporter. Are the rules now settled? Because initially, some of the rules were delayed, some of them were relaxed temporarily. Do we now have the rules for export that we all have to get used to? I would like to say yes. But the realities are is we've seen nearly 11 different versions of the rules in some months. So ultimately, it is likely there will be continued evolution of the rules as different things may occur. And from my side, all I want the UK government to give UK trade is confidence and clarity whatever that might be. Doesn't that always happen? You know, legislation is passed and it takes a while to turn the theory into practice there's always an element of evolution i suppose what i'm asking you is are there more negotiations that are going to change the playing field or is that bit now done and it's now just a matter of well how does this work in the real world i would hope that there is still more negotiation to happen where we can trade off some of the inbound goods checks for eu goods coming into the uk for less goods checks for goods going from UK to the EU. And I think only when we do implement a stronger border on import can we actually start talking to the EU around export. And the big thing that happened in the whole uh, period over the last three or four years was that we actually gave the EU market an unfair advantage versus the UK market selling to the EU. And so from my side, that's something that we don't really talk about. So it was easier for Europeans to sell their goods here than for us to sell our goods in Europe. Absolutely. We've had three years of easements, free flow and simplifications just to ensure that the shelves of UK supermarkets and, and retail has all what they need to 
to survive. But from going the other way, we had the full rule book as if we were a third nation or third country. I don't know if importers would totally agree with the suggestion that they've got it easy. I, I, that's not what you're saying. It's just it's the it's the difference between the two. Absolutely. So it was easier for importers, or more was done to look after importers. I think they just focused on it, being very aware of the importance to overall UK supply chains. But ultimately, it certainly uh, wasn't a level market. Okay, let's look at some of the specific issues. The border operating model. What on earth is that? It's meant to be a handbook or a set of regulations and guidelines about timescales, about how certain goods will move across borders and what is required to move those goods efficiently. And as Charles rightly says, I think we're on to several generations of this border target operating model, which, you know, it, it's not helpful. What isn't helpful? That there are so many versions of it? Or, there's or so the many versions itself? and there's so many deadlines that are set and so many deadlines that then get pushed on that it almost, you, traders are almost saying, well, well, let's wait and see if there's a border target operating model version 12 or 13 that comes out because so a, a number of deadlines sorry, have been pushed this on. Is, this is 11 different versions in what space of time? Three years, is it? Absolutely. Some of these versions will be very public. Some of them are for trade uh, comments. But ultimately, the first version wasn't fit for purpose and there's been a, a big evolution of it. From my side, it's confusing because, oh, you get confused between the different versions and sometimes you just get the dates muddled up because it, it, it overlaps. Yes, Charles is quite right. He's very accurate. It's setting deadlines that are then pushed back. We've got an example, for example, UK CA marking versus CE marking. It's the conformity standards. So, for example, when you buy a children's toy or an electrical item, it will be approved to CE standards. So most manufacturers will, will make things CE standards. The UK CA marking was to replace the CE, CE marking for goods manufactured on the that could be placed on the UK marketplace. So they would meet UK standards, UK conformity assessment. Is this what we used to call kite marks? Absolutely. Right. Yeah, a... BSI marks and yes. kite marks. And yeah, I think I think they were invented by the UK uh, many, many, many moons ago, but we've got sort of left behind a little bit with the terminology. All right, so because we're leaving Europe, we have to have our own version of it. So the yeah. Europe version is CE, we are CA. Yeah, and I believe there's a Northern Ireland one as well. Oh. So as, as there would be, but... There was, a, there was a deadline set that traders must start to move across to a CA marking from a CE marking. They were allowed to put stickers on products in the meantime. That now, so that deadline slipped and slipped and slipped. Um, and then I think the latest deadline was going to be October or January. Please don't quote me on that, but I think that was around about the time. Now it's been said that there's almost like an indefinite pause on that transfer. So as long as you've got a CE marking, it should be good enough for the foreseeable future. So that's another, just an example of how these things slip. The new HMRC system for CDS, the Customs Declaration Service, which replaced the aging and creaking chief system, which had been running even before I started doing customs, that was going to be phased out and this new CDS system was coming in. It's not, it was meant to be bringing the export side a few months ago. That's now been pushed on till March 2024. I, I understand how this might be frustrating and it's yeah. like trying to take an eel and hammer it to a door. But in reality, if it's the new system is being delayed, so carry on using the old system, 
How much of a hardship is that, really? Well, traders need, um, they need to be, have assurance and they need certainty. And I think Charles will probably agree, you know, the biggest issue when you're planning a supply chain and planning a product, and when we talk about selling a product, we're also talking about what labelling has to go on it, not just CE marks and UKCA marks. Has it got to have a, a local address on it, a distributor's address? Has it got to have ingredients on it? Has it got to have additives listed on it? Um, which market's going to go into? What documents need to accompany that product to move it? Traders need certainty by a certain date. Otherwise, they're saying, well, how do we forward plan for the next five years or four years? The worst thing you can do in international trade is not have certainty in your supply chain because you may turn around and go, I'm actually, as Charles mentioned earlier on with the example, I'm actually have, going to have to stop exporting or importing from a certain place because I, I can't keep up with what I'm required to do because I'm thinking 18 months, two years, three years ahead. I'm not thinking about next week. I'm thinking about what I have to do to sell my product on that marketplace. So that's why certainty is a, is a huge factor for companies. Charles? From, from my side, and it's probably a very uh, pragmatic sort of thing, is all of this confusion distracts the great big UK engine from actually getting on and doing their thing of selling, trading, and ultimately making money. And it's just a distraction from what their core purpose is as a business. And that's not good, is it? So you talked about these 11 versions, was it you said, of the the border operating model. If you're trying to look, if, if a business owner or an executive listening to this is trying to think ahead, even for 12 months, is that border operating model likely to change again? Unfortunately, I'm not Mystic Meg, and there could be lots of different changes that occur over the 12 months. But it sounds like you wouldn't be surprised if there was a 12th draft or a 13th draft or a 14th. Certainly some form of clarification or amendment. And this speaks to your point about it making it really difficult to plan. Absolutely. And, and you know, the Windsor Protocol, it, 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 no matter what political hue you are... This is the Northern Ireland. The Northern Ireland thing. No matter what political hue you are, it, you know, what is going to happen in the next parliament with a, if, there, if there is a new government? What negotiations are they going to have with the EU in terms of pushing us closer to a single market, plus pushing us closer to common standards on food that may make life easier? Um, if that's the case, then the border target operating model document again becomes another redraft of and the Windsor protocol becomes or the Windsor framework document becomes another redraft of how it's going to be tweaked and that is not helpful um it's not helpful for the business and it's not helpful for advisors because we are sometimes obviously in a position where we're trying to advise clients on how to structure their supply chains and how to avoid double duty make sure the origin's right make sure they've got the right documents but if we're constantly revisiting documents because things have changed or have been amended or pushed on, we're in danger of giving them the wrong advice. So it, it's it's vital that there's there's some certainty. And going back to your original point, Declan, there's got to be certainty. And you know, even if we do have a new government of whatever political hue, hue that you are, there needs to be cognizance taken of other importers and exporters and how they do business. Because you can't constantly have this shifting sands of one day this might be right, but tomorrow and the day after it might be wrong. Both of you have mentioned that for some exporters, they've just decided to throw the tile in. Has there been a disruption to different types of products coming into the UK or being sold 
by the UK? Are there particular industries or sectors that are more vulnerable to all of the changes that we're seeing? Well, I think maybe the electric car one, going back to that, with the origin issues that, you know, there's just been agreement to push this back and um, and ensure that, you know, the batteries are of UK and EU origin. And are we going to invest in our own factories in the UK to produce these batteries so we can call it of UK or EU origin? That's that's where we're seeing the the, 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 the issues of people deciding, well, am I going to continue with this? Can I source raw materials from elsewhere? Um, I think Charles mentioned it earlier on, with, with certainly more the artisan and the smaller businesses deciding that, you know, this is not for them. Um, the, bigger, the bigger firms can with the related entities. You know, the washing machine manufacturer in Germany who sends it to, a, to his subsidiary in the UK is always going to try and find a way around it because they've got economies of scale. They'll always try and absorb that cost. But I think where you've got the artisans and the SMEs, they're the ones who turn around and go, well, is this really something for us? Are we going to concentrate it? And then you've got to build in the fact of if they've got it wrong with HMRC's new aggressive approach on auditing what's gone on in the past for those easements that we talked about for the importers. A lot of importers went, oh, happy days, let's bring it in. And the agents were saying, yeah, we can delay our declarations. We can bring it in. It'll be it'll be with you within within a couple of days. Now HMRC are catching up on this and they're turning the screw and saying, well, you didn't do this right at the time. You didn't do that right at the time. So here's an assessment. Here's a bill because you didn't do this. Even though there was an easement in place. Yeah, you still had to make sure that eventually you got it right when that final declaration went in or the documents that were still going to accompany it still had to be accurate on, on origin. This feels a bit retrospective. Well, it, it, it will be because HMRC have got three to four years to go back and, and check that uh, things were correct. So when you've got that with 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 smaller SMEs and artisan companies are thinking, OK, we, we've got over what we thought was the worst, the bureaucracy and the administration, the change. Now we're also looking at retrospective action by HMRC, examining what we did in the past and how we did it, almost like a public inquiry. You know, what we did, what was your decision making at the time? How did you do this? What, who told you to do this? Have you got written instructions to your agent? What did the agent say at the time? When you're looking back over three years, it becomes very, very difficult. And clients do get very, very stressed, quite rightly so, that HMRC are looking at this in retrospect and saying, well, you did this wrong in 2022. You did this wrong in 2021. Now we're going to say, why did you do that? Can I see the document? Oh, that's not right. So we're disallowing this. We're now going to charge you duty on this because you didn't have the right evidence. Probably Charles is going to see more of that as well with people coming to him for documents. Charles is looking stricken at this <laughs> at this horror story that you're telling. Uh, absolutely. HMRC are certainly out and about uh, in amongst customers uh, with basically what I feel is a slightly enhanced rule book just because they're clear of what the requirements are. But on day dot, when we were all using the easements and there were all the great uh, uh, news stories about how there weren't delays at the border ultimately now we're having to sort of go back and backfill to make sure that the picture um is is correct and ultimately all the checks were done as as they should have been but certainly and i go back to the most important thing here it's not enabling uk plc to concentrate on their core business function which a lot of these customers that i work with find exceptionally frustrating we should be starting the dialogue around better trade deals with other countries that eu didn't really allow us to trade with 
and opening up different corridors that were protected because we were trying to protect a particular Spanish industry, as an example. And from my side, if we can get that dealt with, it will be a very good thing. Of course, the other consequence of Brexit is that we've stepped out from all the trade agreements that we used to have with all these other nations outside of Europe, and we've had to negotiate our own replacements. And you know, in many cases, all we've done is copy and paste from one to the other and made a couple of additions uh, here and there. But in terms of the new trade agreements that Britain is striking with the rest of the world, what is that doing to change our supply chains and our thinking about importing and exporting? Well, obviously, as you say, there is a lot of cut and paste going on. And I think we're renegotiating the South Korean one as we speak at the moment. Um, they are very, very useful, but the devil's always in the detail. Um, just because the headline rate says we can bring all these items into the UK duty-free and we can send our items to wherever duty-free isn't always necessarily the case. So uh, importers and exporters have got to be very, very mindful that there's certain things tucked away in those trade agreements, like rules of origin, what we call non-tariff barriers. Are you actually allowed to bring things like beef and and other produce in, even though the headline rate says it's it's free of customs duty. So the devil, again, is in the detail for the clients and the customers to say, is this trade deal good for me? And nobody wants to sit down and read 500 pages of a very, very dry trade agreement and an annex. But sometimes you have to. You have to look at, is this going to be, be a good thing for the UK and a good thing for my business when I'm planning my supply chain? To boil that down, Simon, what you're telling me is trade agreements aren't just about tax and tariffs. Exactly. And you really have to understand the detail. You have to understand the detail. It's not just the headline rates of, oh, happy days. I can bring bicycles in free of customs duty. To be a little bit facetious, you'd need to look at, am I allowed to bring these bicycles in free of customs duty? Uh, am I allowed to bring them in wholesale? You know, am I, am I precluded from bringing them in? So you need to look at these trade agreements in the round, as it were, not just the headline of when HMG says we've signed an all-singing, all-dancing trade agreement. Um, because at the end of the day, you might bring it in and then Charles's guys turn around and go, but you're not allowed because the computer system says you haven't got this or you haven't got that or you're not allowed to bring this particular product in. So it creates a bit of a, a difficulty. But on the whole, yes, it's given us that stepping stone into new markets, but beware all that glitters is not always gold. And the flip side of that is, is also true. It's not just about bringing goods into the UK, it's selling goods from the UK. Absolutely. So from my side of things, um, I think we left the EU to enable us to set our own uh, trade agreements up with new and different countries. And we don't actually have an EU market to protect. And really what I'd like to see happen is we start going after some of these trade agreements that will have a meaningful you know, benefit to UK PLC in terms of where previously we were protecting a particular EU market. And that's something that I would like to see rather than the Daily Mail-esque headlines that are currently appearing. Well, give me an example. Things that we would have bought from Europe before and it was preferential oh. to trade with Europe, but we can now look elsewhere. Absolutely. So if we looked at Spain, which is very famous for its citrus, its tomatoes, um, other origins such as South Africa, who produce a comparable and some people would say a better product, 
um, that is at certain parts of the year dutied at quite a high rate to really uh, prevent that coming into the UK market. There is the opportunity now to approach the government and saying, look, how do we get either it becoming duty free or some pre preferential trade agreement being agreed? With the broadest of brushes, we effectively have a trade agreement with the European Union as a bloc sitting alongside trade agreements with the US, with China, wherever they happen to be. Is the deal we've got with Europe still preferential to the other deals we've got in place around the world? It may be more inconvenient than it was when we're only a part of the single market and the customs union, but are we still getting preferential terms for trade with Europe than with anywhere else in the world? I know that's a really difficult question to answer. I still think it's a good trade agreement. When we start talking about the word preferential, because obviously that's got a customs connotation to it. Sweeter. It's sweeter. It, it makes it difficult. It doesn't stop you trading with the EU. It just makes it more administratively burdensome to trade with the EU because you've got these preferential origin and things like that. So it makes it harder. But I still think it's a, it's a reasonable trade agreement. What I think going forward is that we need to be thinking about aligning perhaps in that trade agreement more to do with standards and food standards that's going to allow a smoother movement of agricultural goods and live goods coming through because at the moment there's there's a lot of these non-tariff barriers that are there. So on the whole, the, the trade agreement's good, yeah, but safety, we need to get rid of safety standards. Safety standards and also the, the fact of, of health certification and you know what you need to bring your particular item in. I think if we could get the trade agreement to cover those in more detail and, and be more recognising of each other's quality of production standards, that would that would go that extra step, I think, within the trade agreement. I'm just thinking about the English business or the Scottish business or the Welsh business that hasn't exported before and they're thinking about starting on the journey. Is Europe still the easier place to look at first? I would say... It's on a par, Charles. What do you think? Firmly on a par, but I think it is the easiest from on a, a dis par with the rest of the world. So USA or, or the Far East or Australasia. But in terms of um, being easier in terms of a time zone, travel, distance and all those connected bits, it certainly is. And that's why it forms up a large part of the UK market. But it's it still boils down to pre-Brexit, we didn't have all these controls and barriers. And now suddenly, because of the uh, de departure from the EU, we've got all these additional checks in play that simply are um, um, uh, a paperwork exercise for the authorities. Now, just to say, if you are interested in expanding your business into the United States, this is something that we discussed in uh, another uh, Blick Rothenberg Brave Business podcast, and you'll be able to find that wherever it is that you get your podcasts from. Uh, I don't want to end this with a sense of exporting is now too hard, too difficult, too much effort and brain work required. Give me grounds to encourage exporters. Employ people like Charles and their firm or other suitably experienced freight forwarders and customs brokers to take you by the hand and lead you through it. And upskill yourself. It's it 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 is. It's not a one size fits all, and you do need to have some element of upskilling yourself and knowing what's available and what you have to do. 
But as, as we said right at the very, very start, if you've got a good freight forwarder and a customs broker, then once you get that process in position and you are comfortable with the terminology and you're comfortable with the process, then you can be reactive, then you can be flexible, then you can look at supply chains. And you know, I'm sure Charles has got something to say in terms of, of leading those new businesses by the hand as well. No, and a lot of our customers coming to us are exactly in that position where they're a little bit nervous, they're very worried about all the extra costs and heard all the horror stories. Ultimately, now versus a few years ago, there's a lot more online resource, a lot more guides and simplifications that exist to really handhold these individuals through what first appears to be quite a cumbersome process. I would have joked that actually they made it complicated at some stages just to keep people like myself in a job. Simon Sutcliffe, Charles Hogg, really interesting discussion and great detail and examples as well. Thank you both very much for being with us. If you'd like to listen to other Brave Business episodes, you can find them on your favourite podcast service uh, or for further insight to help entrepreneurial business, you can visit Blick Rothenberg's Entrepreneurs Hub. That's www.blickrothenberg.com slash entrepreneurs with an S on the end. I'm Declan Curry. This has been the Blick Rothenberg Brave Business Podcast. Thank you so much for being part of our conversation.